The following sermon is brought to you by Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 1045 a.m. every Sunday morning and 6 o'clock p.m. for our evening service. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. Well, good evening, everyone. If you'll grab your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. When you get there, um, can you bow your heads and I'll breathe a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for gathering us this evening. We thank you for your word, and we just thank you, Lord, that you have not left us in the dark. We thank you, Lord, that you provided redemption, revelation, and the transformation that we need in Jesus Christ. As we get ready to meditate on these truths and just dive into these truths, I pray that you would help me, Lord, as I communicate them, and I pray, Lord, that you would just open our eyes and help us to behold the wondrous things out of your law. Help us to hide those things in our hearts that we might not sin against you. And I ask these things humbly in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. And it reads, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Verse 2, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Verse 3, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. And before we get started, I want to read to you an interesting quote that I came across as I was studying to teach this passage. And it reads, quote, generally speaking, Christians have tended to focus their attention on what Jesus has done, his life, his death, and his resurrection, and what he will do, his future return and his future reign. And while there has been something of a revival in the study of Jesus' ascension, there is a tendency to, cons to consider Christ's exalted state simply in relation to the events of his ascension or his second coming. The Christ that Christians trust in, relate to, and love is the Christ who not only lived, died, and rose, and will come again, but also is presently at God's right hand. Christian faith, as well as Christian theological reflection, must take into consideration this significant aspect of Christ's identity. And in these passages, in these first four verses of Colossians, Paul was well ahead of this commentator. Paul already knew that. And, and Paul, in, in these first four verses of Colossians, he's really going to make us focus on the ascended Christ. Paul's not going to make us think about Jesus' um, death, burial, and resurrection. Paul is more concerned with the implications of his current reign at the right hand of God the Father now. That has implications uh, for us now. And in the first verse, I'm going to go ahead and give you the first point if you're taking notes. The first point is, believers are united to Christ's resurrection. Therefore, believers pursue the risen, ascended, and exalted Christ. 
I'll say that again. Believers are united to Christ's resurrection. Therefore, believers pursue the risen, ascended, exalted Christ. Look with me at verse 1. It says, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Depending on the Bible translation that you have, some translations say since you have been raised with Christ. So if can also mean since. And what Paul is doing in that first verse is he's arguing from what he's already said in chapter 2. If you look at those last few verses in chapter 2, we can set this first verse in chapter 3 in its proper context. Paul says in chapter 2, verses 20 to 22, he says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive to the world do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not uh, taste, do not touch, referring to the things that all perish as they are used. According to human precepts and teachings, these have indeed the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh. So in chapter 2, Paul is, if if I could summarize it, in chapter 2, Paul is really teaching the Colossians what it means to be in union with Christ's death. Since they are in Christ, they have died to the ways of the world. They cannot pursue sanctification like the world tries to draw near to God. They don't use the various practices of the various false teachers that were in Colossae at this time. Paul is telling them, you're dead to that. You're not going to advance spiritually by doing this. Christ died, and you died with Christ. That old person that you used to be, it died. That old paganism that you used to practice, it's dead. You have a new identity in Christ. So by the time he gets to uh, chapter 3, verse 1, because the gospel is not just death, it's also resurrection, Paul also moves in his logic from you died in Christ to now resurrection. Because we don't just die with Christ, we get back up. That's, that's what baptism pictures. We go down and we come back up a new creature. And then it says, believers are united to Christ's resurrection. If you have been raised with Christ, or since you have been raised with Christ. So he, has, he is assuming that they actually have died to the world. They are really dead to the world. This is not a theory. This is not some fi- a philosophical idea. This is a reality. And if you are a Christian today, you really are dead to the world. That great sermon that Grant preached this morning, he taught us that, that we are dead to the world. But Paul here, he's continuing that train of thought. Now he moves from death to resurrection. So therefore, we're to look at chapter 3, verse 1, as the answer to that logical question. Well, if I died to the world, how am I supposed to live? You live in Christ. You live, you, you live in the resurrected Christ. So therefore, this is Paul's answer to the question. They're dead to philosophy, Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. Legalism, Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 to 17. Mysticism or asceticism, Colossians chapter 2, verses 18 to 22. And because they are dead to these things, they don't need to depend on the world for their spiritual uh, maturation or their spiritual growth. And after reminding believers that they have died with Christ to the world, Paul goes on to remind them that they are also raised with Christ who is in heaven. We don't serve a dead Savior. Christ is living now. He's doing something now. You look at all the great figures in history, they're in the grave. The only one that's up now is Jesus Christ. And because he lives, we live. Isn't that what he said in the Gospel of John? 
We have a living source of sanctification. We don't just have somebody who died for our sins and then rose from the dead. He's helping us now, as we will see in, in, in these next few verses. So what we need to understand is sometimes in the world, it's this notion sometimes for people who might not know any better. We've all heard this. Don't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. That's not going to help you in sanctification, by the way. It's not going to help you. But Paul switches that. What Paul says is, you really can't be any earthly good if you're not heavenly minded. Well, let me put that in, in, in some different terms. We call that a biblical worldview. If we serve a living Jesus, we're going to see the world through the lens of that living Jesus. And that's what Paul is saying in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. We need to set our mind on the things above. And then in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, you don't have to turn there. Paul says our citizenship is in heaven. So we need to view ourselves as citizens of heaven. And citizens of heaven do not use the means of the world to advance spiritually. We use the means that God has given us. Or Paul says it this way in um, Ephesians chapter 6, the weapons of our warfare, or 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They are not carnal. They're not of this world, but they are powerful through God. And a heavenly mind is going to try to draw from heavenly resources. So the evidence of a Christ-centered mind is a mind that functions solely based on Christ's lordship in heaven. It's not a mindset that says, okay, let me, let me try to do something. Let me, let me try to get something from the world. What can Buddha Muhammad teach me about my spirituality? What can Confucius teach me about my spirituality? We don't need them because they're not Jesus. Jesus is greater than all of them. All of them put together equals nothing compared to Jesus Christ. You will not move 1% uh, further in spiritual growth by following anything other than Jesus Christ. It is only Jesus Christ that helps us to grow. So really, when Paul says, set your mind on things above, that's just another way of saying, set your mind on Jesus. And then in Romans uh, chapter 12, verse 2, he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Ephesians 4.23, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Those are commands. We have to change the way that we think. We have to change the way that we view the world if we are truly in Christ and we're, and we're truly saying that we follow him. Then he moves on and he says, seek the things that are above. To understand what he means here, we have to understand something about the false teachers in Colossae. The false teachers there, they were teaching that uh, people needed some kind of esoteric, heavenly vision to um, grow spiritually. It would be similar today of people saying you need some kind of second work of grace after conversion to really go on in, into spiritual maturity. They were saying, no, 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 no. you got you to have some kind of heavenly vision. Jesus is not enough by himself. You need to literally have some kind of transcendent experience in heaven for you to move on and grow in your sanctification. But Paul com com combats that idea uh, uh, very eloquently because he doesn't say, okay, don't think about heaven. Don't think about heaven. Heaven, don't worry about that. Just worry about the Bible. He's so wise in how he deals with this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. You would think he would say, okay, don't seek things that are above. He says, no, 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 no. The false teachers are telling you to, you need a heavenly experience. But what I'm telling you is don't listen to them, but still seek things that are above. And the reason why he's saying that is because Christ is in heaven, seated at the right hand of God, or that place of preeminence. 
And then if you look at how Paul talks about conversion, turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. Look at how Paul talks about how we're converted. This is why he says, seek things that are above. So he contrasts uh, who we were when we were unconverted, and then he talks about God's saving intervention in our lives. And in verse 6, one of the things that God does for us in conversion, look at what it says, raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. So you see that? That's why they're to set their mind on things above. Because spiritually, that's where we are. We're we're in union with Christ. We're in union with his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. So so, so we're to move up in our thinking, to grow up in our spirituality. Another way to say it is, if you really want to grow up in your sanctification, just look up. And don't look up just to look up. Look up because Jesus is there. That means to look at Jesus. And the evidence that, that this is true, that we have actually been seated with Christ in heavenly places, is that our hearts have been transformed. Peter said in 1 Peter 1, uh, verse 3, he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has caused us to be born again to a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to a hope that cannot, it can't be defiled. It's kept for us in heaven. We're being guarded by God's power for salvation that will be fully revealed at his second coming, but, but, but he's guarding us. And that's why he's saying, look up. Look up, that's where Jesus is. You're in right relationship with him. And also, the apostle Peter says something similar on, the, on this idea. He tells them to look up in heaven because Jesus is there, but he's not just merely telling them to just look in heaven. He, he's telling them to put their focus on Jesus Christ. And what Peter says is, Peter had the vision of Christ. Peter saw Jesus in Matthew 17 on the Mount of Transfiguration. So if anybody should be telling people, hey, you need this, um, this experience of literally seeing Jesus and all the prophets um, in heaven glorified, it would be Peter. Peter didn't do that. Peter said, I saw all of that in the Word of God is still a, a more sure revelation. We don't need to see more. We need to obey what we already have. Because that's what the world says. The world is always trying to add to the sufficiency of Scripture. We don't need Scripture plus experience. We don't need Scripture plus um, other rules. We just need Scripture. Because Scripture is, is the primary means that the Holy Spirit uses to sanctify us. So, so when we're looking to heaven, all we have to do is behold what God says about his Son in the Word of God. That's a heavenly vision. So Peter literally saw this, this, this transfigured Christ, but he still did not say, okay, you need something else. He said the word was sufficient. Look at what he says in 2 Peter 1, verses 16 and 19, to 19. And you don't have to turn there. For we, didn't, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For, we ha- we, we, for he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by majestic glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard the very vo- a voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you would do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. He's writing to a church, by the way. You have the word of God. I saw the experience, but 
canonized scripture or what would end up being canonized scripture, they were to pay attention to. You don't need anything more because what God has said in words is just as powerful as, as, as experiencing the event ourselves. And look at what Paul says in Romans 8, verses 24 to 25. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For, for who hopes in what he sees? If, 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 if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We don't have to see more than what's written. That's the reason why it's called the Christian hope. It is certain expectation of things we have not seen yet. But we live in a world that thinks they have to have everything um, shown to them to satisfy their empirical senses. We don't need that. We trust God at, at his word. If he can save us, he certainly can do everything else that he said he can do. So we don't need to see more. We need to obey what he's already told us. So Paul's point is, while we're on this side of eternity, we would not receive a physical vision of heaven. There are only two ways that we're going to see heaven now. Either you're going to die and go there, or Jesus is going to come back. Other than that, we're not going to see it. But then we move on to where Christ is. He didn't just say focus on heaven. He said where Christ is. Believers are not only raised with Christ, but believers are also ascended with Christ. So we don't just stop at the resurrection. We also have to think about the ascension. Paul is connecting the Christian life here with Christ's ascension. He ascended to heaven. Therefore, when believers pursue Christ, they are pursuing heaven because Christ is in heaven. So he's not just merely um, just saying do this in general. He's saying that because of Christ, their connection with Christ. They don't need to follow these false teachers on earth. They have something way better than what the false teachers are willing to um, teach them. And these false teachers believed in heavenly visions. They worshiped angels and all of this stuff. So that's, that's why Paul said, seek heaven where Christ is. Because we also know the angels are there. Um, these different celestial beings are in heaven and they're worshiping at the throne of God. And in the Gospel of John, John saw these heavenly beings and they were so majestic, John almost worshiped them and the, and the angel said, no, 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 you need to get up. I'm not the Christ, don't worship me. I'm just a creation. So, so, so we don't need to worship angels. We don't need to worship anything in heaven other than Jesus Christ. So that's why he says where Christ is. And then the false teachers, they were fascinated by all of this extra stuff that really doesn't even make heaven heaven. And additionally, many times as Christians, we're guilty of this. And you say, well, Jaquan, how can you say that uh, we as Christians are sometimes guilty of worshiping heaven? Because we'll say things like, man, I just wish they would get saved so they can go to heaven. Or um, I can't wait to get to heaven so that I can see my loved one. Or I can't wait to get to heaven uh, so that I can get out of this world. Heaven is not heaven because it's glorious. Heaven is not heaven because you have streets of gold and all this types of stuff. Heaven is heaven because Jesus is there. That's what makes heaven heaven. If Jesus is not in heaven, heaven is just another place. We want to go to heaven because we know him. We want to go to heaven because we want to see his glory. We want to go to heaven because we're going to behold him and worship him for all eternity. That's what makes heaven desirable. That's what makes it desirable. But these false teachers were trying to point the Colossians everywhere but Jesus. So in our thinking, we must think about heaven in relationship to Jesus because that's what, that's what should inform our desire or motivate our desire to want to go to heaven. But then he moves on and he says, seated at the right hand of God. So Christ isn't just in heaven. He's in heaven in a preeminent position. 
He's seated at the right hand of God above all the angels, all the authorities, all of that. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 to 22. You can turn there. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 to 22. And in this passage, Paul is praying that the Colossians would understand God's power. And in verse 20 talks about how he worked that same power in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead. But look at what it says, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come, verse 22. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all things. So you see there this idea of Christ being at God's right hand. Him being at God's right hand does not just literally mean he's just standing at God's right side. No, 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 no. His right hand means he's at a place of preeminence. He's at a place of total authority. He, he, he's at a place of full authority. Or another way to say it is Jesus is king or Jesus is Lord. And Paul here when he says seated at the right hand of God, he's alluding to Psalm 110, verse 1. Let's look at that, Psalm 110, verse 1, because that's really the key, I think, to understanding when he says the right hand of God. And in this passage, uh, Paul says, well, not Paul, but David says, the Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, why is that important? Well, I'll quote one scholar. One scholar wrote, quote, not surprisingly, Psalm 110, particularly the first four verses, become the Old Testament passage quoted more than any other in the New Testament. It points to Jesus' messiahship and his exaltation. And the first Christians take their cue from its effectiveness here for use in later apologetics. So the, the apostles use Psalm 110 to show that Jesus is Lord. He's, he's Lord over all. They use this verse in, in, in different texts as we're going to look at. So seated at the right hand of God, number one, means Jesus is king. That's what it means. If you want to understand what seated at the right hand of God, it means that he is king. This is an allusion to Psalm 110, verse 1. He's the subject of that psalm. It's talking about him. Now, how do I know that? Well, Jesus alludes to it in, in Matthew 26. In Matthew 26, verse 64, he says, when they asked him, are you the son of God? Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the son of man, there's the phrase, seated at the right hand, the hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. So you see there, Jesus is identifying himself with, with Psalm 110, this idea of being at that place of preeminence. He's making that claim and they got angry and upset because they knew what he was saying. He was saying that he, he's putting himself as, 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 a, as the messianic figure and as a God figure. That's why they got so angry when he said that. And then look at how Peter uses it. Peter actually uses this text on the day of Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost when he's preaching, he uses a bunch of Old Testament texts. He uses Joel 2, he uses um, Psalm 16, and he also uses Psalm 110 and 1. Now how did Peter use this psalm? Well, if you look at Acts chapter 2, verses 32 to 35, look at how Peter uses this psalm. He says, 
Then Jesus, God raised up, and we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And then look at verse 34. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but, but he himself said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You remember in Acts chapter 1, Jesus ascends, right? He ascends to heaven. He says, the same way I left is the same way I'm going to come back. Peter was a witness to that. He, he saw all the events of Jesus' life, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he tells them the reason why the Holy Spirit was poured out, the reason why Joel 2 was fulfilled, is also because Psalm 110 is fulfilled. That Davidic king or priest king in Psalm 110 who was prophesied, it was Jesus Christ. And when he ascended to heaven in his place of preeminence, he pours out the Holy Spirit. And then they're wondering, hey, what in the world's going on? Why are these people speaking in these strange languages? Why do they sound like they're drunk? Peter said, no, 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 no. They're not drunk. God is just fulfilling his promise. Let me open up my um, Septuagint or the Greek translation of the Old Testament and let me show you. I'm going I'm to go to Psalm 110 and I'm going to show you. Uh, by virtue of his resurrection and ascension, he is that priest king in Psalm 110. He's reigning. He's king. And because God fulfills his promises, that's why this is happening. And then also in Acts of the Apostles, the apostles are praying. The Sanhedrin comes up to him and says, hey, y'all need to stop doing what you're doing. What did they say? Acts 5.31. We would rather obey God rather than man. Now, why did they say that? Why would they say that? Because God, Acts 5.31 says, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. So since they knew that, that Jesus is this preeminent figure in Psalm 110, if Jesus is transcendent over all governments and all things, why would we obey a lesser authority when Jesus is the greater authority? If you're lesser and Jesus is greater, forget about what you said. I'm going to obey God rather than you. I'm going to obey this figure in Psalm 110 because he's authority over you. So they said they're going to obey him. They're going to continue to preach the gospel. And then in Ephesians 1, verses 21 and 22, it's also alluded to there. Because he's above all rule, all authority. Matthew 28, all authority has been given unto me. He fulfills that, that, that kingly role in Psalm 110. And then Jesus' kingship on this side of eternity is especially experienced in the church, namely the hearts of believers. When you come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, you know experientially that he's king. You know why you know he's king? Because we're to build our lives around everything that he says. The king's decree is the gospel. He calls us to repent and believe and turn to him. So, so, so we experience that in our hearts through conversion when we place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and look at what Paul says in Colossians 1, verses 13 to 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's how we know he's king. Only kings have kingdoms. He said the kingdom of his beloved son. And Grant also made that great point in his sermon about how either you're serving Satan or you're serving Jesus. There's only, two, there's, there's only two kingdoms, if you even want to call Satan's kingdom a kingdom. But when, when we come under Christ's lordship, that's another way of saying we enter into his kingdom. He's king. He rules. He tells us what to do. He's king over all authorities. 
So on this side of eternity, he's go, he rules in the hearts of his people for the benefit of his people, and he works from heaven, building his church and collecting his elect from the four corners of the earth. But if you also notice in Psalm 110, there's another office in Psalm 110, particularly in verse 4. Look at verse 4. It says, The Lord has sworn, and he will not change his mind. You are priests forever after the order of Melchizedek. The same person who's, who's at the right hand of God ruling is the same person that, that's being spoken about here in Psalm 110, verse 4. And notice he's the priest and the king. And, and that makes us ask theological questions. How in the world can the person in Psalm 110 be the priest and the king? Because he comes from a transcendent order. Look at how the writer of Hebrews describes Jesus. We know he's talking about Jesus because he quotes Psalm 110. He says in, in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, he says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So what, the, what this makes clear is not only is Jesus king, but he's priest. So when we think about Jesus at the right hand of God, that's not just some complex theological idea for the ivory tower theologians. That's a truth that, that, that you and I can take in our lives every day because we serve a living savior. He rules, and not only does he rule, but he sufficiently intercedes for his people. Jesus intercedes for his people. And not only does he intercede for his people, but he gives his people assurance that they're headed to heaven. We know we're headed to heaven because he's our forerunner. We look to him. He's our assurance. And then that leads us to the second point. Believers are ascended with Christ. Therefore, believers have a mind that is centered on heaven. Verse 2. And in verse 2, Paul, Paul makes a positive statement, then he makes a negative statement. In, in verse 2, he says, set your mind on the things that are above, and then negatively, he says, not on the things that are on the earth. So positively, the Colossians are to set their mind on Christ. The Colossians have the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2.16 says you have the mind of Christ. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, we are commanded, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. They are to be transformed by the truth that they know and experience in Christ. You can read about that in Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 to 15. God's work in their lives, burying them with Christ, raising them with Christ. And this means that we cannot conform to this world because we have been transformed in Christ. And therefore, we know what God desires of us. We know that we're not to be conformed to this world, but we're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. So our thinking must be heavenly because he is in heaven. He's seated at the right hand of God. He's that high priestly king that, that, that's spoken of in Psalm 110. And we're to give our allegiance to him. He's to have our confidence. And he's to be the basis of, of our pursuit of sanctification and the entire basis of Christian spirituality and Christian piety. And then negatively, the Colossians are to turn away from unbiblical thinking. The false teachers had a fleshly, overinflated mind. 
they had a mind that was set on the earth. And Paul in other places, such as Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8, you don't have to turn there. What does he tell us about a mind that is governed by the flesh? A mind that is governed by the flesh it is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So we can't please God when our thinking is geared towards um, things that are around us rather than his prescribed means and, and, and his prescribed Savior. Which leads us to that third point. Believers are united to Christ's death, therefore believers die to self. Look at verse 3. He says, why shouldn't we set our minds on things of the earth? Well, he, re- he reemphasizes the argument that he made in chapter 2. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That is a very interesting verse. That's a very interesting uh, statement. He says, you have died. What it means for us to die means that we no longer live the same life that we lived before we were believers. We don't just have a new identity in theory. We, we really do have a new um, identity. We all can think about that. Think about when you were converted. Think about when your friends saw you. Think about the friends that might not have been Christians. What do they say? Oh, man, you're not the same. Well, what happened to you? Sometimes they speak of it as if you got hit by a car or something. Man, what happened to you? But the reality is God has done something. God has done something radical um, in your life and in your heart. That means your identity has been changed. But that's not the only thing that it it means. When Paul says you have died, it also means that you have been set free from the penalty and the power of sin. Sin no longer reigns in your life if if you are in Christ. That, That old person died. That old person you used to be, that was reigned by sin. Sin determined everything that you did. Um, Your desires govern everything that you did, but now since you're in Christ, you're in a new position, and now you have that new ability that that, that was given to you via the grace of God to say no to ungodliness, to live that self-controlled, upright life, as as Titus chapter 2 says. But look at what Paul says here in Romans chapter 6, verses 8 through 11, which is really a parallel passage of this. He says in Romans chapter 6, verses 8 to 11, He says, now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer will have dominion over him. Look at verse 10. For the death he died, notice he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Verse 11 is the application. This is how we're we're to think. You are to consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. That's what it means to die. We no longer live for ourselves. It's no longer, what do I want to do? What does God want me to do? Um, What's going to bring me the most glory? No, 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 no. What's going to bring God the most glory? How can I make myself look better? No, 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 no. How can I conform to the image of his son? We end up having a new agenda. We're no longer a self-driven life. We now have a Christ-driven life. I don't want to say purpose-driven because I know that has negative connotations. And then we must understand that this idea of dying, what this tells us is the Christian life is a daily endeavor to die to self. Ourselves are the biggest problem. I know that from experience. Don't Don't ask me how, I just know that. Ourselves are the biggest problem. 
The person that we look at in the mirror every day is really what hinders our sanctification. That's called the flesh. That, that's called that sinful desire that still indwells all of us. And we have, to, we have to be constant and we have to be intentional about dying to ourselves every day. And Paul talks about, talks about this in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. It is no longer I who live, but I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for me. So Christ died for us so that we can die to ourselves and live for him. 2 Corinthians 5, 15. For he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Our life is Jesus-centered. Our life is Christ-centered. Then he goes on and he says, your life is hidden. But I want you to notice that he doesn't just say your life is hidden. Notice whom you're hidden by and whom you're hidden hidden with. It says that your life is hidden and we are hidden with Christ in God. Which means that just as Christ is hidden from the plain view of the world because he has risen and ascended, so are Christians hidden from plain view on this side of eternity in the sense that all that, that, that we will have or inherit has not been made manifest. Or, or I'll put that another way. We don't look like what we will be. Sometimes we look like we're struggling. Sometimes people can look at the church and say, man, that if Christ is reigning, that, that church doesn't look very victorious. That doesn't look like a church where Christ is reigning at the right hand of God. So, so it's not always going to look like uh, we're victorious. Some people call that the church militant, the, the, the church on earth, where some, sometimes we suffer, sometimes Christians get martyred, sometimes even believers personally, we just look defeated or we go through tough seasons in life. But that's not how it's always going to be. That's not going to be the, 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 the end goal. And when the world looks at us, sometimes they can just wonder, man, um, are you sure that Christ is reigning? But he really is reigning. So in other words, the glory that we possess is not going to be seen by unbelievers. We live by the internal, not the external. And since unbelievers, since they live by sight, they cannot see us for who we really are. Because our our true identity is hidden from the world in Christ, in God. So on this side of eternity, God's kingdom is not going to be seen. We, we, We know God's kingdom is real. We know that God is reigning. We know that experientially. But the world just does not see that. It, it, it's hidden from them because they can't, they can't see it, nor can they uh, understand it. So on this side of eternity, we experience that transformation and that rule of God internally. So Christ's rule is first experienced in the heart through spiritual transformation. And then when he comes back the second time, that's when that full reign will be fully manifest, when he returns at his second coming. Look at what it says in Romans 8, verses 23 to 25. We ourselves, we have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit. Notice, grown inwardly as we eagerly await the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Or First John, what does First John say? What we will be has not yet appeared. But when he appears, we will be like him and we will see him as he is. So what we will be is future, but even what we are and what God has already done gives us that assurance that the other things will take place. 
So take heart, just because the world doesn't see you for who you really are, that's because you're in Christ's hand. You're in the hand of God. You're hidden with Christ in God. They're not going to see it. But we know that it's there. We know that that hope is coming. We know that that resurrection is coming. And that brings us to the fourth and final point. Believers have died in Christ. Therefore, believers have true hope in Christ. Look at verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So he says, when Christ, who is your life, appears. Paul here is teaching that although the world cannot see that Christ has ascended, they'll see him when he returns. Revelation 1 says, they will wail when they see him. uh, John in the book of Revelation is quoted from Zechariah. He says in Revelation 1-7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on the account of him. Even so, amen. So they're going to see him. He's physically, visibly coming back. They're going to see it then. They might not see it now, but they'll see it then. So our hope has to be in him. It has to be in what he has promised uh, in the future. We can't have a here and now, have it all Christianity. God has not promised to give give us everything now. In fact, he says in this world, we are going to have tribulation. But we'll be vindicated at the second coming. At the second coming, everybody will know that Jesus was right. And then he says, you will appear with him in glory. So here Paul makes it clear that, that not only will believers see Christ, but believers will enter a never-before-experienced uh, state of blessing when Christ returns. This means that believers do not live based on temporary awards, temporary little, little things, temporary vindications. We live for eternity. That's what the Christian life really is built on. We're moving forward towards eternity. We're not getting stuck uh, in the here and now. And based on this hope, we await for the future, which is a certain future. And, and, and that hope is really based on our present relationship with the risen, ascended, and reigning Lord, Jesus Christ. He is the basis for our hope now, and he's the basis for our hope in eternity. So again, I'll reiterate, if you want to grow up in your spiritual life and deepen your sanctification, look at Christ. Meditate on the implications of his resurrection. Meditate on the implications of his ascension. Think about what he's doing now as high priest. That's called the session of Christ. Christ is doing something now. He, he, he's participating in that heavenly high priestly ministry. He's not just sitting in heaven just waiting to come back. He's doing something. He's ministering to us. It says we have a high priest who, who is able to sympathize with our weakness. Let us th- uh, draw near to the throne of grace. So even though we're waiting for that hope, we can turn to Christ now. Because not only is he the source of your justification and your initial salvation, but he's the source of your sanctification as well. And he's the goal of your glorification. So always remember that. God has not left us without resources. And there are some implications for all of this. So in light of our relationship with the resurrected, ascended, and reigning Christ, we have all that we need to be godly, to live a godly life. And there are really two implications based on the verses that come after chapter 3. The first implication is our relationship with Christ demands that we mortify our sin. We're in union with Jesus Christ. We're to hate what he hates. We're to love what he loves. And one of the ways that we know we hate what he hates is if we mortify our sin. In verses 5 to 11, Paul talks about taking off or killing, mortifying that sin, that that sin in our lives that doesn't represent Christ. And then secondly, 
We need to understand that our relationship with Christ demands that we pursue virtues. Look at verse 12. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, love it, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. So you see there, sanctification is not just us passively sitting around, as, as some people say, let go and let God. We have responsibility in sanctification. The source of our sanctification is Jesus Christ. The foundation of our sanctification is Jesus Christ. But just as God is sovereign, we also have a responsibility to pursue that. God is not going to zap us, and one day we're going to become more patient. We're going to have to pursue that, put it on, take off things. So, so as we look to Christ, we need to also be looking at what he, he has given us and told us to do. He's told us to take off those vices and put on those virtues. So in conclusion, I want to exhort us, let us set our, set our minds on Christ. Let us ponder the hope that we have in Christ. And let us be heavenly minded, because it is only when we are heavenly minded that we will be any kind of good on earth. That's the power that heaven is, is looking to heaven is looking to God in Christ, because that's going to give us the power to live the Christian life. And in closing, I just want to read, read to you 1 John 3, 3. And anyone who thus hopes in him, talking about Jesus Christ, purifies himself as he is pure. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you, Lord, for a resurrected, ascended Savior who helps us with our weaknesses. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us all that we need in him for a, for a life of godliness. And I pray, Lord, that you would continue to help us, Lord, to look to him as we pursue uh, this walk of sanctification and as we pursue your glory, Lord. And as always, we thank you, we love you, and we honor you. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.